Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of The Art of Customer Service. My name is Eric Pfannmüller. I'm your host on this show, a former canoeing world champion, father of three, and founder of Solvemate, a leading platform for automating customer service. As you know, in The Art of Customer Service, I talk with experts about what makes good customer service, which tools and practices are relevant, which new technologies are available in the customer service area, and many other exciting topics around a great service experience. Today's episode on the art of customer service will be about customer understanding. How to put your customer at the heart of your business? How can you actually listen to customers? How is the feedback used? Tune in to learn about how to build customer personas and how to build a customer-centric culture. For this topic, I am having with me today Annette Franz. Annette has spent more than 30 years in customer service and customer experience. Wow, this is your anniversary and she's helping customers and companies getting more customer-centric. In addition to that, she's a book author on two books. One is called Customer Understanding. And I've just today seen on LinkedIn that your new book, Built to Win, is available for pre-sale in the coming weeks, but more on that later. Welcome on the show, Annette. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great introduction. And I'm excited to talk to you about customer understanding and a customer-centric culture. I mean, this is what every business should be striving for. I could not agree more. Let's jump into the details. Um, you've been in customer experience for such a long time now. What has sparked your interest back then and what still excites you about CX? Well, it's interesting because I started at JD Power and Associates back in 1992 and I came on as a, you know, as a project director. And when I saw the, it was an ad in a newspaper for the job, right? I love math and I love writing and, you know, market research is certainly a combination of both of those. And once I got into it and started to see how the work that we were doing is really then used to help companies improve how they do business and obviously improve the experience for customers. I mean, we didn't talk about it back then. We talked about customer satisfaction and customer loyalty back then. For me, that was was fun. It was neat to just get in and really understand why the experience was so bad, why service was so bad, you know, and how we, what we could do to help. What does it mean to understand customers? And why is this important, especially with regards to customer service? At the heart of it, it really is about seeing and feeling and learning through the eyes of your customers, through their hearts and minds. I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there are three ways to do that. And it's really core to how you run the business and how you serve your customers and how you service your customers. There's a saying from Seth Godin. He says, find products for your customers not customers for your products. There are so many times when startups reach out to me and say, hey, I've got this great product. You know, I want you to take a look at it. And then one of the first questions I'll ask them is, well, who are your customers and what problems do you solve for them? And they go, well, I just had this great idea and I thought that I would just, you know, create it and then I'll find customers that we'll figure it out from there. And that's really what that saying means, right? If we find products for our customers, we're taking the time to solve problems for them and help them to do whatever job it is they're trying to do. If we're finding customers for our products, we've got sort of this inside out thinking where we think, oh, I had this great idea. Now I'm going to go find a customer who can use this product. And it's really backwards, you know, and I think those are the types of products that suffer in the long run. Playing devil's advocate, I could argue if you build a startup or like a new product or service in the market, you need to build something that customers do not yet know they know about. Just to make that example, um, electric cars weren't known as a desire before Tesla was emerging and changed the whole way of consuming cars and mobility. Just having that one example, I of course get that you need to sell it to a person in the end, but what would you argue against is building new needs? That's a great example. The other example that comes up a lot too is the iPod. When Steve Jobs created that, 
why did we need, we had the Walkman, we had all these other great things that we could use to listen to music. We had albums, we had this, we had that, right? Why do we need that? What we do is when we talk to customers, when we take the time to understand them, we're really looking for the problems that they're trying to solve and the jobs that they're trying to do. And in the Tesla example, more and more people are thinking green, right? Oh gosh, I, you know, have got this gas guzzler. I'm, you know, polluting the ozone. I'm doing all these things. It goes back to Henry Ford too. If I had to ask customer what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Well, what they needed really a faster, more efficient way to get there, you know, and that's really what that is. So if we ask them what problem they're trying to solve, same thing with the iPod and the iTunes, right? Steve Jobs created this thing where suddenly we could have a thousand songs in our pocket, right? But I think the bigger solution that we were solving there was if I wanted to listen to a song, I had to buy the whole album. I had to go and spend $30 or whatever it was to buy the whole album. And I only wanted that one song. With iTunes, you can buy that one song for $1.29 or $0.69 cents or nine, whatever it is, right? If we listen to customers and we figure out what problem they're trying to solve, we will build better products. And I think that's the Tesla thing too. Right now, everybody's green, 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 right? And he just came up with a better product than some of his competitors have. So, so effective you're saying there is a desire, even if it's not yet hard to be articulated, like the faster horses with Henry Ford. But there is a desire for green mobility. There is a desire for hearing one song on, on one album. And that's why you need to build a product for your customer and not vice versa. Because every product you build needs to fulfill a desire, even if it's a strategic one that you don't know yet how the solution will look like. But that's kind of the art about it. Every company should understand their customers and their needs. And you're the expert in that. Very often customers are not explicit about their feedback. And why is this topic on the art of customer service? In customer service, you get contact to customers. Probably there is implicit feedback, how people use it from adoption rates or from churn KPIs or from booking rates. But very often people also get human personal feedback in customer service contact points. All of that probably is about understanding customers. So how can companies understand customers best? I say there are three ways to do it. There are probably more, but there's sort of three big categories of ways to do that. The first one is listening. And that's really a lot of what you just said too. And listening is really about feedback. And that comes in a lot of forms, right? Surveys, social media, solicited and unsolicited. And in the contact center, your employees, your service reps are getting feedback all day long, but where do they put that, right? Where do they capture? How do they capture, right? So that's really important. So listening is about that feedback. And it's also about what I call the breadcrumbs of data that customers leave behind as they interact and transact with us. And some of that does happen in the contact center. So point of sale receipt data, you know, clicks on your website, you know, those kinds of things as they're interacting with the brand that we then capture. If we have the, the ability to marry that with their feedback, we really have a robust set of data insights about our customers. We could probably talk for three hours about what some of the best practices is, but I'll, I'll highlight a few things, right? So it really is about capturing feedback or asking for feedback wherever your customers want to provide it, right? If they don't want to take a survey, provide some other avenue for them and then make sure you're checking social media, online reviews, you know, those kinds of things where they're going to leave feedback even if you haven't asked for it. So again, solicited and unsolicited. And then ask relevant questions, questions that are relevant to that particular experience. Don't ask about things you already know about. If you already know what somebody bought or when 
they contacted support? Don't ask those questions. You already have that data. And then I think that probably the biggest thing after you have that data is to do something with it, right? So you can't just listen. You have to act on it. I say there are five different ways to close the loop on customer feedback. One of them is immediate service recovery, right? So somebody provided feedback. There was negative feedback. So let's close the loop immediately with that individual customer. Closing the loop at a more tactical or departmental level where the feedback is then used to fix whatever issues are happening in the moment, right? And then the third one is more strategic, right? Taking all that feedback, combining it and looking at your overall, your operations, your processes and what needs to be improved organization-wide. Closing the loop with employees, using that feedback to coach and, and train employees based on what we heard from customers. And then the last one is closing the loop with customers. So we've made improvements. We've changed the experience. So now let's go tell customers what we did with their feedback, reset expectations about what the new experience is going to be like. And what that does is it's self-perpetuating, right? It encourages customers to continue to provide feedback because they know that feedback is being used. So we got three items for our listeners. It's about listen, characterize, and empathize. So let's move to characterize. Yep. So characterize is all about a lot of marketing departments have what they call buyer personas, but we really want ultimately customer personas because the buyer Persona is really just focused sort of on the funnel and getting people to buy. But what we really want to understand is who our customers are, why they buy, pain points, problems that they're trying to solve, jobs they're trying to do, preferences, likes, dislikes, expectations, those kinds of things, and develop those personas so that we can use them to design the experience. And I say use personas because a lot of companies want to... What is a persona in the first place? How would you define that? Good question. It's a fictional graphic character, graphical representation of your customer, right? It's when you see a persona graphic, it's usually like a one pager with a picture of a customer or an ideal customer or a prospect. One pager, we then outline pain points, problems to solve, all those kinds of things. But their persona ultimately is a grouping of like-minded, like customers who have similar pain points and problems to solve. So we want to bring them together and really understand who they are and tell their story so that we can then use that to design better experiences for them. How much personas should a company have? So we at SolveMed, for example, of course, I know what personas are. We have three different personas and we gave them funny names because we sell customer service software to the service leaders. So we call them support Susies and involved in our deals is, for example, CEO Claire. What we figured out, it's about abstracting because not everyone is a support Susie and not everyone is a CEO Claire, but it's about getting a feeling who you talk about. And I have a picture in mind when talking about CEO Claire, for example. So we said, well, this is the demographics. This is their potential martial status this is their age, this is their desires, this is their feeling, this is their needs. And internally, it helped us a lot. When we talk about CEO Claire, it's like not only an alliteration, which is fun to think about, it's in mind whom you talk about when you talk not only about potential prospects or customers, but you talk about a certain role. It's a level of abstraction. But the typical question is, how much personas are good? Because you can abstract a lot to the customer, or you say, well, there is this maybe big difference between uh, men and women. Maybe they have a big difference between the French buyer and the German buyer. Maybe they have a difference between different product line buyers or their desires why they buy a product. One is buying a, a bicycle, buying it for hardcore adventure riding or for the rider in town. How would you define that difference and the level of granularity? What advice would you give? Yeah. And I'll just go real quick, go back to CEO Claire. I, I love that because you have to name them. I'm sure you're socializing them throughout the organization. So when you're talking about a customer, you, you mentioned, how are we building this for Claire? You know, those kinds of things. So absolutely love that. The idea number, I would say three to five should cover about 80% in your key customers. You may have a persona or two that is 
sort of the outlier and you want to think about them, but really you're going to have three to five key personas that you're going to focus on. Now, B2B might have a couple more just because a lot of times those personas are role-based. You know, you might have six, you might have two, you might have four, you might have six, but three to five is, I think, a good framework or a good guideline in terms of how many you'll have. Understand. So very good rule, three to five persona to cover 80% of your customer base. That's a good level of abstraction. You said earlier a sentence about build a customer persona instead of a buyer persona. What is the difference between those? So the buyer persona is, as I said, they're usually what you have in your marketing department. And they, when they create those personas, they're looking at who they are, you know, demographics, what they buy, why they buy, brand preferences, those kinds of things. Really focused on how do we market to those people? How do we bring them into the funnel, right? Versus a customer persona... We often see these in our UX departments. They're similar, right? We go into more detail. We have to look at the end-to-end experience. We can better design the experience if we focus on pain points, problems to solve, jobs to be done, than if we are just really thinking about brand preferences and you know what they buy and why they buy. You need to have a picture in mind. And heuristics are, of course, wrong, but they help us navigate this complex world. You don't want to talk about individual clients. If I was a B2C company and we wouldn't know all of our clients by heart because we got deep relationship with any client, but you need to have data for from feedback to say, well, from this survey, this group of people in this geography or however you're going to split them, they're using the product in a certain way. They have certain desires. And out of that, isn't it like a, a second step to characterize people? Absolutely. Before we go on to step number three, which is empathizing, is it a constant thing of listening and characterizing, building personas, or is it an evergreen? Because I would say you can't always change personas because it's about adopting the persona inside an organization to actively act on it. What advice would you give with regards to improvement cycles? So listening is ongoing, is continuous. You will be doing that every day for the rest of your life. Personas, I would say you should reevaluate them on a regular basis, especially if, as the business changes, right? So you've got new products, you've got new competitors, you've made an acquisition, something about the business changes or something about your customers change, right? So those are the kinds of things that should drive you to, but you should reevaluate them once a year just to make sure that they're still the correct personas that you should be focusing on. Happy to go to step number three after listen, characterize, let's go to empathize. What do you mean with empathizing with customers? Empathize is all about walking in our customers' shoes, right? Understanding the experience that they're having step by step. What are they doing, thinking, and feeling as they interact with a brand? And so what I'm talking about is journey mapping, bringing customers into the room and having them tell us just that. What are the steps that they take from point A to point B? So we talk about customer service, the contact center. What are the steps you took from the moment you had that need to reach out and get support until your issue was resolved, right? Or your question was answered from their perspective in their voice. To the listeners that are not 100% experts in customer journey mapping, I've understood the journey is, I mean, like a journey from start to end. Um, How would you visualize a customer journey? Is it typically in phases? Is it the result of a series of workshops after asking customers? So how can I envision for someone who has not done customer journey yet, what's a customer journey looking like? couple things. So I don't like to do it in phases. If we look at the journey in phases, what we're really looking at is sort of a customer life cycle map. And then we've got, you know, awareness, consideration, blah, blah, blah. You've got all the stages and that's not detailed enough. That's great for marketing and the funnel and all of that. But for designing an experience, I think the point that I want to make though is you want to chunk it out into digestible steps, right? You don't want to go, okay, well, I took the time to do my research. Then I went to the car lot, test drove, and then I did this and then I did this and then I did this, right? You want to look at each of those piece by piece. So here I go, I get onto the car lot. Now what happens? What happens from the moment I walk onto the lot to the moment I walk off? 
off the lot. You know, this is COVID, right? So we had already done a lot of this stuff beforehand, right? We, they'd already had my credit application. I had seen pictures and videos of the car. I already knew what I wanted. I had reached out to a local dealership to say, here's the car that I want. Do you have it? No, I don't. Okay, can you find one for me? They found one for me, right? I could map that part of the experience and I could map the experience where I get on the lot to the moment that I signed the paperwork and left. And then, you know, the next thing would be came back because there were some warranty things that they were covering. And the point that I want to make is that you want to look at those individual stages in a journey map, right? You don't want to look at all seven stages. You want to look at the individual stages or the individual interactions because you want to capture that level of detail so that you can pinpoint exactly where things went wrong and what you need to fix or where things are going well and the things that we continue doing. So we want to just really keep the scope of the map to a manageable, digestible size so that we can focus on that piece, right? And get the level of detail that you need to have. And you had asked, you know, what a map looks like. A lot of times, you know, when we're in person, we're doing these workshops, we've got butcher paper on, up on the wall and we're post-it notes, right? In virtual workshops, which I've done a lot in the last two years. Oh, who has not? <laughs> we are now in year three of the pandemic. Uh, although this is very sad. Can't wait to do them in person again. That'll be fun. But I've been using Mural, a collaboration platform, right? It looks exactly the same as the butcher paper and post-it notes on the wall, except we've got it you know, virtual. We've got it online. Don't want to make any advertisements for Miro, but we also use it at SolveMate internally and it's working great. You know, just the collaboration that you can do, whether you're in person or online, works out really well. And ultimately what it looks like is you've got these swim lanes going left to right, where each swim lane captures either what the customer is doing, thinking, or feeling. We're capturing who the people are that they've interacted with. We're capturing the systems, the channel that they went through. So if it's a customer service thing, was it by phone? Was it by chat? Was it by email? It's like I said, we want to get as much detail as we can so we can really understand the experience. This is all about understanding again. So we really want to understand the experience, find out what's going well, what's not, and use that information to really fix or keep doing the things that we're doing well. Are you matching in this process personas with customer journeys? Because I could, for example, getting to the car dealership, probably I am, I'm a very special person when it comes to my personal, how I would buy a car than maybe someone else. Maybe some people just go to the dealer, look for a car and take one that's standing there. And then there's people who know everything about the car and the details and every configuration before they even get to the dealer. They, they don't want to get sold. They are sold already. How do you match personas and journeys? So the interesting thing about the three things that we've just talked about, listen, characterize and empathize, they all go together. You cannot start journey mapping without having having your personas because every persona's experience is different. So you have different maps for different personas. And the listening piece, that feedback and that data, we bring that into our maps too, to really take it from a qualitative to a quantitative sort of exercise where we got data from multiple customers and it helps to just really beef up and make the information from the map more robust than it already is. So all three of those work together and absolutely you cannot start journey mapping without personas because different personas, different experiences. There is people like you that are just super experienced, certified customer experience professionals out there. Why do I often have the feeling that customer journey is still broken? <laughs> well, there's a lot of people who don't really know what journey mapping is and how to do it correctly, right? I think that's part of the problem. You know, they don't start with personas. They start with segments. They don't do it with customers. They do it internally, right? Let's get a group of stakeholders together and let's map the customer journey. And that usually devolves into process mapping and we aren't bringing the customer 
customer voice into that. I actually have a six-step process for journey mapping. It's a tool and it's a process, right? And so in that six-step process, there are really three key maps that have to be done. One is the journey map. One is the service blueprint, which is who the people, the tools, the systems, processes behind the scenes. Who are they? And what is all that? That's supporting and facilitating the experience that we just mapped. And you have to do a future state map. So there's this whole process. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing. And it goes back to listening too. We listen, but we don't do anything with it. It's broken, right? We map, but we don't do anything with it. It's broken. The other thing is, is, you know, and I've talked people out of, I've actually talked people out of journey mapping because they don't have the budget or the commitment to do anything with what they learn. And it just becomes... I was about to ask that. Uh, Interestingly, SolveMate has made journey mapping just recently. So very interesting to see the results out of that. What if you don't get commitment or most companies are very hierarchically organized, which is the old way of working, but still there is someone to be convinced out of learning that. I don't want to take anything up front for our listeners, but the next episode will be all about overcoming internal resistance. But what's your one minute summary of how to get executive commitment? Having those CEOs actually sit in on the those journey mapping workshops, the eye-opening experience it is for them to see the pain and the suffering (laughs) and the frustration that they put their customers through. Uh, Many times has happened where they've walked out of that session and the next day, my my contact at the clients, he just gave me budget. We're good. Let's go. Let's move. So that is probably one of the biggest ways to get executive commitment or the CEO commitment is to have him or her sit in on a journey mapping workshop and really hear what the experience is for customers. If you have ever watched that show Undercover Boss, it's sort of like this, right? That same kind of experience where it's like, wow, this is broken. We do this? What? (laughs) So yeah, it's very much like that. And it's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle. You've got to do one workshop to get the CEO in there to get that commitment. But once you do, it's eye-opening and you'll get that commitment. Maybe it was the right thing that I was also part of the journey mapping or at least saw the results, which they are typically eye-opening. I can confirm that. Because time is flying by before we come to an end, because I want to talk about like your next book, which is really interesting about fundamental principles to build a customer-centric culture. Just to quickly talk about this so that listeners can learn more. What are the typical traps that companies fall into when going through understanding customers, listen, characterize, and empathize? Traps are, I think, just that. They don't have commitment. They don't have budget. That's. I'm glad that your next podcast is about that because I think it's a huge fail point. I think the two biggest things are you don't have executive commitment and alignment across the organization. You've got to have both executive commitment and alignment. And then the second thing is the culture, which is really what also then prompted my second book, right? If you don't have that customer-centric culture in place, if you don't value bringing the voice and bringing the customer into all of your discussions and decisions and designs, it's going to be painful. It really will be. And it'll be a challenge to get this work done. What are the fundamental principles on building a customer-centric culture? Because I totally understand, like traditionally there have been companies who just sell something to someone and then they're going to make some revenue and then people are contacting them through customer service, which is typically the point of contact where you can revert a negative experience into brand advocates. I think there has been a traditional way of how businesses are run, which is, I would say, business-driven. And then there is being customer driven, everyone in an organization having that in mind. So I think that's such a crucial thing these days. And it ends with customer service, but customer service is, at least in my understanding, only the tip of the iceberg. So what are your thoughts? There are 10 principles, as you mentioned. I already mentioned two of them. If you don't have the culture in place and if you don't have the executive 
commitment and alignment. I mean, those are probably two of the biggest foundational elements. One of them is that employee experience has to be a priority. I say employees must come more first, which I borrowed from a quote from Hal Rosenblum. You have to take care of your employees. And without employees, you have no customers. You have no customer experience. They're the ones who build the products. They're the ones who deliver the service. So yeah, absolutely. And then I say people before metrics, people before products, and people before profits. You know, people kind of shrug and get a little (laughs) frantic when you say people before profits. Profits. But it's not that profits are you know bad. It's just that they're an outcome, right? So the means to the outcome is your people, right? Take care of your people and the profits will come. The next one is customer understanding, which we just talked about. Customer understanding really is the cornerstone of customer centricity. And when I say cornerstone, if you know construction, you know that the cornerstone is really that reference stone, that first stone that is set. All other stones, when you build onto your foundation, are set in reference or based on where that stone is. And so I thought that was a really good analogy for customer understanding. Bring the customer voice in. Everything else that you do revolves around that customer voice and and needs to bring that customer voice in. The next one is around governance and breaking down or connecting silos and organizational gaps. That's really important. Customer-centric culture by definition is a collaborative culture, but if we're not collaborating, if we've got these silos that are just really keeping the data from flowing and the information from flowing, we've got a problem. The last two are outside in versus inside out, which is really exactly what we've been talking about too. We've got to make sure that we bring the customer voice in instead of saying we know what's best for our customers. And then the last one is the platinum rule. The platinum rule rules. It is all about treating customers the way they want to be treated. The golden rule says treat customers the way we want to be treated, but it's really all about treating them the way they want to be treated. Those are the 10 principles. And yeah, I'm excited to get the book out there and have people read that. A very short rush on a very interesting topic, which... I always like if people boil things down to a certain number of bullet points that you can then actually remember. So it's probably much more complicated as you just summarized it in two minutes. So the author is called Annette Franz, very easy to write. And the book is called Build to Win 10 Fundamental Principles on Building a Customer-Centric Culture. We, of course, will put it to the show notes, but you can just Google for it. That was such an interesting talk. I just want to say a big thank you to California. We just talked over the ocean and I'm so grateful about digital technology connecting two continents and creating this awesome some content. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. And I think, like we said earlier, we could talk about this for hours. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Annette. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. Danke fürs Zuhören beim Digital Kompakt Podcast. Du merkst, hier ziehst du massig Wissen für dich und dein Unternehmen heraus. Wenn du mit uns noch erfolgreicher werden möchtest, abonniere uns auf den gängigen Podcast-Plattformen. Und hey, je größer wir werden, desto mehr Menschen können wir helfen. Also erzähl doch auch deinen Kolleginnen und Kollegen von uns. Bis zum nächsten Mal.